imagination. But um, we want to look at this, and then we'll have our communion service together celebrating the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And uh, we'll do that this morning as a body of believers today. I want to look at the account, this early service of the empty tomb. Secondly, in the second service today, we'll look at some reactions at the end of the book of Luke as to uh, what happened to Jesus Christ. But I want to do this in a kind of a unique way. And you've got an awful lot of points there. I really have, want to have you write these down so you'd stay awake, but they went ahead and put them on the screen for you, I think, already. That's fine. Um, I was trying to think ahead a little bit there. But um, anyway, but you have them for you. And so notice that there is a number of things that I want us to uh, look at this morning together. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word this morning, I encourage our hearts. Thank you for the fact that Jesus Christ was not there in the tomb, but he was victorious in his resurrection. Thank you for that great fact and that great truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to look at, first of all, the events, and then we're going to look at some memories. And then finally, we're going to look at some certainties. And of course, the certainties are really the essence of what it means for us to understand Christ and all that he is to us this morning. But I want to just run through the events with you real quick of uh, the first chapter because it is a time of early sunrise service. And I probably shouldn't tell you this, but I got a picture of my grandson going to church in his pajamas this morning. So I told Krista he'll start a new fashion trend. I'd hate to see that happen here. We might all be like Walmart people, right, Timothy, in our pajamas, if uh, that would be true uh, here in the, our service this morning. But anyway, notice <clears throat> that we see, first of all, an empty tomb. And what a tremendous blessing it is to have an empty tomb because it means everything that you and I believe today has been verified and has, is now looked upon as something that for us, not our world, but for us, and we speak in those terms many times, it's very important. Notice who the first visitors were in verse 1. It says that they were very sad. They came to the sepulcher, and it says they were sad, or at least we have the idea from the other accounts, that they were sad at this point, thinking that basically everything was lost. It was all over. Their Lord, their Master, their Messiah was hung on a cross, and he was placed in an empty tomb, and they think it's over. There's really nothing left for them to look, up, look upon and have hope about. And so they're coming to anoint the body of Jesus Christ with some very special ointments that would be very Jewish in its tradition. But see, we think that as we see this, we see that they, still, they loved him. I think that's the observation we have to make. You know, they loved their Savior. They, they loved Jesus Christ. And even though they think it's over, they still have this great love for him. And so as they come, they're worried about this stone in verse 2, and the stone is rolled away. We see that in verse 2. Now, how did the stone get rolled away? Nobody knows. God probably rolled it away in some way, but it was an obstacle that God had to get out of the way in order for the people to come in and see the tomb. So the stone was not rolled away so Jesus Christ could get out. We all understand that, right? The stone was rolled away so that people could come in and see where Jesus Christ used to be. And so it's very important for that uh, we understand that. And we find that uh, they could now observe this. Thirdly, the body was gone, verse 3. They entered in and found not the body of Jesus Christ. It's gone. It's not there. It's disappeared. And there's no one around. And the question every since this point has been that question, where did that body go? 
And we've looked at different explanations throughout the years. He, they, he hallucinated or he fainted in the tomb and then he got better and rose and they went to the wrong tomb. There's all kinds of theories out there. But you know, the idea is that if Jesus Christ's body would have been around, somebody who did not believe upon him would have produced it. And they would have debunked everything that we understand to be true from Scripture. And let me tell you right now, nobody has ever produced the body or the bones or the shroud of Jesus Christ. And so he is alive today, and that point proves to us that he is alive. Next we see these heavenly messengers in verses 4 through 7. And as these women are standing there, they are much perplexed, it says, when these two men stood by them in shining garments. Now, in the devotions for the week, I have given to you all four accounts of the resurrection. And we find that there are some differences as far as the accounts concerned, but they can all be put together in one very succinct manner. And we find that the, these women are perplexed. And why? It's verse 5. And as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said unto them, why seek ye the living among the dead? They're not looking in the wrong place. It's not the wrong tomb. They're fearful. They're perplexed because of the events that they have observed. And we find that they are ones who are not looking someplace they should. And this is where Jesus Christ, and they knew where Jesus Christ was placed because they observed him in the end of chapter 23, Luke tells us. They observed the tomb and other Gospel writers tell us the same thing, and so they know where they were going. It's not like they were somehow in the wrong place, but they are much in fear that they don't understand what's going on. Boy, isn't that true of our lives so many times? How many times could you say, and I'm not asking for testimonies today, I was perplexed many times that we've been perplexed about many different things. They're perplexed, but notice verse 6 really is an important part, and it's one that we repeat often. He is not there, but is risen. There it is, folks. All three gospel, synoptic gospel writers record that event. John does not say those exact words, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke all use that same phrase. He is not here, he is risen. There's no one to see. There's no person here. There's no residue of this person that's here. He is gone. He is risen. Remember how he's spoken to you that when he was yet in Galilee. You need to remember some of those words, some of those ideas that he espoused to you as you were following him and walking with him through those many times together, watching his miracles, seeing him feed the 5,000 and the 4,000, and on and on it goes. Because when he did that, he always mentioned the fact in all the Gospels that he had to die. And, of course, the disciples were perplexed by that also. And then they review this in verse 7. The Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men, be crucified, the third day rise again. Remember, he told you that. It's not something new. It's not something off the cuff. But it's exactly what Jesus Christ stated to you. And so the tomb was empty, the heavenly message, the heavenly message and now we find that the message itself is believed in verses 8 through 12. It says, and they remembered his words. We'll see that in just a second. What a marvelous statement that is. To call back to memory the teachings and the words and the miracles and the illustrations of Jesus Christ. 
because they had been right there with him, watching and walking with him throughout all these days. And so they remembered. And returned in the, from the sepulcher and told all the things unto the eleven and to all the rest. Now, there are some phrases here that are not defined for us very closely. The eleven, of course, we understand because Judas would no longer be in the group. But all the rest, there had to be another group of people that were involved with this as well. They are not identified for us by Luke, and I don't think they're identified for us really in the Gospels. And so they return to these individuals and tell them, these are the first preachers of the Gospel message. And these women came because Jesus Christ can change the lives of people. That's an important thing for us to realize. Jesus Christ didn't die on a cross and come to this earth for us to have better families and to be able to figure out our psychological problems. Jesus Christ came to this earth for one purpose and one purpose only, to die for your sins and mine. And that's what we celebrate this morning. And to give us a home in heaven one day. That's why he came. Everything else is sort of an ancillary good thing for us. But it's that key point that we have to always keep in mind. Jesus Christ came to save sinners from their sins. That's the gospel, isn't it? So they are the ones who came and mentioned that, told that. They're identified for us in verse 10. And there are other women with them. We don't have, a, again, a, a specific amount of ladies. There are a number of these ladies. They're also found at the cross, aren't they? Isn't that amazing, gentlemen? And that's what makes this testimony even more valid. Because in that culture, the testimony of a woman, a woman would not be accepted. And yet here we have in the Bible, the testimony of Jesus Christ is given by ladies. And to say that Christians are the ones who have devalued and degenerated womanhood is really a mistake and a misstatement throughout all the ages. Because God has and Christianity has placed ladies in their proper positions, as God's Word states it. Verse 11, and their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Boy, gentlemen, they said, don't believe. Of course, they haven't seen the empty tomb either, have they? But these ladies came back and gave that very definite report. And it says, then Peter arose and ran to the sepulcher, and stooping down, beheld the linen clothes lying by themselves. This is an important verse. It tells us some of the details of how Jesus Christ's tomb was there given by themselves, wondering in themselves at that which was come to pass. He does make it, or John is not mentioned. He's mentioned in his gospel, but not here. But Peter, of course, would be the lead apostle anyway. We've seen that throughout the time. So he comes and he sees this event as well. So those are the events. That's the basic core events that happened during this time of Christ's resurrection but I want us to think about some memories that are going on because it says in certain places here that they remembered. And, and I want you to go down with me again. I've underlined these words in my Bible, these experiences that these ladies have had. There are going to be some pronouns and some verbs that I'm going to focus in on. There's seven of these things that give to us the experiences that these ladies had that day. And they're all graphic. They're all action words. And they're all started by the word they, and we're not identified who the they are until we get down to verse, verse 10, which then gives us the subject of all these pronouns. But just let me run through these two with you for just a second. Notice in verse 1 it says, they came unto the sepulcher. 
They had to get there. Okay? They had to move there. Verse 2, they found. So after they came, they found something. There was something worth finding at that point. And it was the fact that the tomb was empty. Verse 3, they entered. So after they came to the tomb, we find that they go in and see what's going on. Now other gospel accounts do not have that recorded for us, but here we have Luke telling us that they came. Remember who Luke is. Luke is an historian. He's not a Jew. He's a doctor, so he would be very, very much one who would observe the evidence. And he was also one who, in chapter 1, verse 1, went through the material and put together an account. You can read it for yourself, verses 1 through 4 of Luke chapter 1. And he studied out the passages, he says, and he put this thing down in a reasonable area so Theophilus, who also was addressed in Acts chapter 1, would be able to understand that this truly was the Son of God. That's his purpose. So he is making these observations about these ladies. They came, they found, they entered. Verse 4, they were much perplexed. So we have an adverb that sticks before this one because it's going to intensify the perplexity that they have. Much perplexed. Then in verse 5, it says they were afraid. So we see this sequence of events. After they see, they're afraid. Then in verse 8, they remember. Notice that's the next uh, uh, pronoun with a, with a verb behind it. They remember. And finally in verse 9, they told. They told all the things unto the eleven. That's a little different in its makeup. But what a sequence of events. They came, they found, they entered, they were perplexed, they were afraid, they remembered, and then they told. That's a great way to view this empty tomb, isn't it? To be able to see the events. What, though, did they remember? Three things. It's there on your bulletin or on your, on your outline for you this morning. They remember three things. It says they, re they remembered, and these are things that I'm going to, uh, us to think about this morning. They remembered their problems, but they forgot his promise. Think about that. They remembered their problems that they had, but they forgot his promise. We see that in the words that the angel speaks to them. Don't you remember what he said? He's going to die. He's going to be resurrected in three days. They saw the cruel treatment. They saw the cross. They saw the events of the resurrection. They, they forgot, though, that he said, I am going to rise again from the dead. Their emotions were so strong at this point that all they could see was that terrible picture of their Lord and their Master, and you could paint it in your own mind as He hangs there. And I don't think anybody today in Hollywood can do it justice. As He hangs there between heaven and hell, and, or heaven and earth, I should say, and provides for us salvation. They remembered that because where were they at? Foot of the cross. With John and all the disciples have fled away, of course, we don't know what Judas is doing do we, at this point. They remember that. Sometimes we have the same problem, do we not? We get so involved in our problems and our hardships that we forget to look at the promises of God. Anytime you're in a time of problems, hardships, difficulties, it's the promises of God that's going to take us through. Yesterday at the funeral, that was the point that I had. You know, it's the Word of God that brings relief, not the trite cliches. If you and I want some kind of comfort in our lives when we're going through times of despair and things that we don't even understand, <clears throat> we got to remember those promises of God, heaven and what it's all about and what He's given to us in those promises. 
They forgot those. Secondly, they remembered his words, but they lacked his wisdom. They didn't know all that's going on. They finally brought it together in their minds because they had heard his words many times. He had repeated those words. I am, no, I'm going to have to die. I'm going to have to hang on a cross. And yet, they did not get it all together. Isn't that the way it works sometimes? You know, you have all these facts out there and all these different ideas, but to finally get them some kind of a, 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 a sane, lucid idea where you can put it all together is, is not always the way that... Uh, it's, it's easy for us. And we need that help from God or Jesus, the Holy Spirit for us, to help us to understand all these things. They had to think the way God was thinking. And sometimes they, we have to change our ways in order to think the way God thinks because we are told to follow our master, Jesus Christ. Third thing is they remembered their task and they proclaimed his triumph, which is really the end result of this. We need to be sure that we do not get too busy with the different events that are going on today that we forget the task that God has given to us. We'll see this in the end of Luke. Of course, you know the Great Commission all four Gospels repeated in their own version. Matthew chapter 28 is the one that you and I recognize the greatest or the one that's the most visible or recognizable to us. But they are given a commission. They're given a job to do. And they are to do it. We've got to be sure we don't get so involved with the cares of the world today that we forget to remember what Christ told us and to fulfill the responsibilities that Christ has given to us. So the events and some memories, let me just end with some certainties that really give to us <clears throat> the whole essence of what this day is about and how it affects us because it does put an explanation point into the gospel message. It puts an explanation point into what you and I understand to be true. And there are seven of these that I have put together for you this morning. It proves Christ's greatest claims. Think about that. The resurrection proves the greatest claims that Jesus Christ ever made. His word is true. His message is true. He preached a message that was from God. He did take away the sins of the world. He did provide for us salvation. This event establishes that. This event proves that. That his word is true. And as you read the gospel accounts, you know, the Pharisees and the ones who were his critics, many times they would attack him about areas that were sort of on the side, but not the core message that he spoke because they could not dispute his miracles. They tried to say he was from, you know, from Satan one time. That didn't work too well. <clears throat> and you study the gospel. I trust you study the gospels. Because they all complement this idea that, you know, his word, everything he spoke was true. And there's never been another person like this in all of history. Second thing, <clears throat> it proves that God accepted Christ's sacrifice. Whenever Jesus Christ died, he didn't die for Satan. He died for God because God is the Holy One. He's the righteous one. He's the judge. And he's the one who we have to answer to one day. And when Jesus Christ died, he made sure we know now that God accepted that sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The debt of sin has been paid. He is right now where? The right hand of God the Father. He's interceding for us. Justification is complete. You and I benefit from it. We'll see 
second service that the Old Testament talks about, and he'll mention this to the disciples. He will explain to them from the Scriptures how he fulfilled the law. Everything has now been complete and totally accomplished for us. Thirdly, it manifests our pattern of life. We must die daily to our sins. We don't have it made until we finally reach that place of our sin nature being gone when we're in heaven. Everything from this world, everything we do is going to be tainted by this nature that's called the old nature of the sin. The flesh is basically the better biblical term for this. And so we have to conquer our sins each day. We have to live for God each day. We must be willing to be living sacrifices, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 states. And so we find that we find that it's a pattern of our lives. We must conquer every day. You and I, we do have the power, we have the victory, but it must be appropriated. It must be placed into our lives. We must assimilate it into our hearts and, and our beings. It must be something that you and I totally understand and make a part of who we are. That's how we live our victorious Christian life. He reveals our power for life because this is the power you and I have. It's the resurrection power. The same power that caused Jesus Christ to arise from the dead is the Holy Spirit's power in your life today. We don't always tap it the way we should. We don't always use it the way we should, but it's there. We need to be individuals that allow this power to become part of our daily routine. Fifth, we have a present friend. You don't worship a dead Savior today. Aren't you glad you don't worship a dead Savior? You don't go someplace and throw a petal of flower at his coffin or sarcophagus, where the big technical term is today, you know. You don't do that. They do that with linen. They do that with Buddha. I, and I heard somebody say this. You know, you can go and find, I don't know where it was that. You can find all these people. You can look at their bodies. The only, per, the only religion, I'm using that term loosely, the only religion that there's no place you can go and see a body is our, what we believe, Christianity, the faith, because he's not there. And we find that we do not worship a dead Savior. He did not stay in that tomb. We have a living Savior today, and you and I as believers have a personal relationship with Him. Not some kind of a vague corporate relationship. We have that also, but it's a personal relationship that we have with our Savior Jesus Christ today. You can go to Him right now with your greatest needs and your greatest burdens, and you can pour them out of the throne of grace, and you can know that He hears and answers your prayers. What more could we want? Because he is the one who can do something about it. You can go to counselor after counselor, and they can't do a thing about it. They can give you some good advice, but Jesus Christ is the one who made you. He understands you. He's the one who put you together. He had the blueprint of your soul. And he knows what makes you go today. And you can bring those burdens before him, and you can lay them there at his throne, and he cares about you. That's a great blessing. Most people don't care about anybody anymore except themselves. But he cares about you personally because he invested the blood of his son in your life. So, you know, we have this present friend, a living Savior, a personal relationship with him. I can't emphasize this too much. Sixth, it anticipates our future glory. One day, we'll go home to be with him. Yesterday, we witnessed that. Blessed thing to see 
one of God's children who have suffered from pain and many difficulties to be ushered into the presence of their loving Savior. I would think that the first thing that someone like that would probably see when they enter the heaven's gates, and I don't know how it all works, and I'm not giving any kind of theological definitions this morning, but you know the first thing I think they see is those nail-printed hands. As he welcomes them into his, their eternal bliss, and I think everybody in this room, I've been with, with, with you, many of you for a lot of issues, that you have somebody right there who's in heaven already. And to know they're in heaven makes it all worthwhile, doesn't it? It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see him. One glimpse of his dear face all sorrows will erase. So what's our part? Bravely run the race. We're here in this earth today. Bravely run that race. When? Do you see him. What a day that'll be when my Jesus I will see. Fanny Crosby wrote some of those words, and of course, that blind hymn writer was always possessed with Jesus Christ. We'll meet our loved ones. I've got some loved ones I want to see, don't you? There's some people I'm looking forward to communicating with. There's some people I miss dearly in my life, and you do too. And that reunion will be great, but it's still Jesus. Because he's the one who secured this for us. He's the one who made it possible for us. And he's the one who made it possible for your departed loved ones to be in heaven this morning. Without the empty tomb, there would be no possibility of that. Our preaching would be vain. Our lives would be vain. Everything we believe would be vain. Romans, or 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We would have nothing to base our lives on. Our philosophy should be then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. But no, we have something far greater than this terrestrial earth around us to experience one day in heaven. I can't even imagine streets of gold that are so pure you can see through them. And gates of pearls. And folks, the older I get, that's why I'm going to retire because I'm starting to think about heaven more and more all the time. And you're probably tired of hearing about it. But heaven has to be sweeter all the time because you and I have more people there than sometimes we even have here, whatever your age is, because of what a sweet place it is to have that great reunion of God's people. Number seven, it changes the lives of people. This is tremendous. The only thing that really changes us is God's Word. The disciples did not believe. They're in despair. You can't help but see this in this passage. And after, he saw, and after they saw for themselves Jesus Christ in the book of Acts and the Holy Spirit descends upon them, <coughs> they are changed people. I was reading something about some skeptic who said, you know, everything else here I can, kind of, I can kind of work out of the way, but that fact that those disciples' lives were changed is something I cannot somehow come up with some kind of an excuse about. Because they were so different from what they were as they're warming their hands, Peter's example, by the fires of the enemy. And God does change people, doesn't He? Christ changes a person. Timothy gave me this book. I can't remember the title right now, but this gentleman who was shot down in the, 
in, uh, in the South Seas by, in, his, in his bomber. He was a bomb scientist, and that guy's name was Zapponi. He was an Olympic athlete. You all probably read the book. It was a movie even made about it, too. Can't remember the title. What's the title? Unbroken. There we go. And so I read this title, and I read this book, and I was working my way through. And Timothy, of course, he cheats. He listens to it. And I read it by the book. He has it, you know, piped into his head somehow and listens to it that way. But I'm reading this, and as we're reading through this thing, and, and you know, I mean, if you want to read, read something, you know, it's, it's quite the tale of how he floated on. I'm not going through all the details. But the end result of the book is he was having all these flashbacks because he was in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. And he was going to kill the one guard. And, he, and here's the essence of the story. I, I shouldn't tell you this. You won't read the book now, will you? But the point is that he comes to Christ as personal Savior. And he says that as soon as he came to Christ, all the flashbacks ended. And he forgave those folks who persecuted him. And he was different. He was changed. And you know those other accounts. I mean, we could talk about Mel Trotter this morning. We could talk about my Uncle Harold. I've told you about him. The man drunk all the time until Christ saved that man. And he didn't drink anymore. God changes people. He's changed you, hasn't he? He's made you something you weren't before. He took you as a vile sinner who was in rebellion against him. He gave you a new life. He gave you a new heart. Saved your soul. He changed your attitudes. He changed your affections. He changed your thought patterns. He changed your ideas. He changed you. And our response can only be, thank you, Lord, for saving myself. You know, I said this a couple weeks ago. God's been good. Hadn't God been good? Just think of your life. Think of what he's done for you. Think how he saved you. Maybe you were brought up in a Christian home, but just think how he pulled you out of the mire and out of the clay and placed you on the rock of his son, Jesus Christ. Boy, he's been good. And every time you start to get discouraged and you think, oh, it's going to fall apart and, you know, they're going to kill it in Washington, D.C. and everything's just going to, I mean, on and on and on. Just think how God's been so good to you. And for the next few moments, we're going to think about how good God's been to us. Is we're going to participate in a time whenever we allow our hearts to remember that he broke his body for us and he shed his blood for us on a place called Calvary. And he left instructions for us that we are to do this in remembrance of me. And so this morning, as you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this is done in remembrance of Jesus Christ in that empty tomb that was there that morning in which there was no body there and he was alive and well. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives to us the instructions for these next few moments that we as a body of believers share together, which of course we have been commanded and told to do by our Savior, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, 
This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do you as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Gentlemen, would you come please and prepare the table for us? And as he states here in this passage, we are to examine ourselves. This is for God's people, those who know Christ as personal Savior. This is, a, this is a remembrance or a memorial to what he's done for us. And it says that it is for God's children. And so this morning, if you do not know Christ, this is not for you. It's not that we're being mean or intolerant. There's a good word today, right? It's the fact that you and I are just simply saying, Lord, this is something that we do for you as a family together, as a body of believers together. And so, you know, it's important for us to realize that's what's going on. But we do have a a moment where we're going to examine our lives to be sure that we are presentable. Now, that's what the word there means. We're not perfect, but we do want to be presentable before our Savior this morning. And so the passage tells us that uh, we should make a few moments and examine ourselves. Okay, so let's all just have a moment here where we look at our lives and examine and see there's nothing there that will hinder us this morning. The Bible tells us that he took the bread and he blessed it. And so, Dwight right there, would you bless the bread for us this morning, please?
represents the body of Christ that was broken for us. Take each all of it. Light managed with the cup, and he blessed it. Brother Harold Wirt, would you bless the cup for us this morning, please? Represents the blood of Christ that was shed for all of us. Take, drink, y'all of it. 